Today, we are in part six of our series called Long Story Short. Now, if you're just joining us for the first time in this series, you've got some catching up to do. But the good news is we are starting in the New Testament today. So here's what we've done in this series. We're taking probably eight weeks. I think we'll get it done in eight weeks. It was originally seven weeks, and then some of you called me on it right away and said, yeah, the pace you're going, there's no way we're getting this done in seven weeks. To go through the whole Bible basically cover the main story of what we see in the Bible. So there's a storyline that weaves throughout. So we've been covering that. So today we are starting in the New Testament. Last week we wrapped up the Old Testament. And in the weeks that we've done this, I'll give you a very quick recap. Um, We started with the creation account in the book of Genesis. We started at the beginning. Um, And then we met Abraham and God spoke to Abraham and God said, I'm going to have a covenant with you. We're going to have a relationship, not just with you, but with your descendants. Your descendants are going to become a great nation, and there's going to be a covenant relationship. And I'm mentioning this because we're going to talk about that a little bit more today. But the covenant between God and his people was this. You stay faithful to me. I'll stay faithful to you. This is going to be great. That's how a covenant works. Like, we're going to do this together. You'll be my people. I'll be your God. And that was the start of it. Um, Eventually, Israel found themselves as slaves in Egypt Maybe you know some of these stories. Maybe you went to Sunday school and you heard these stories, and there was the flannel graph board with Moses and this Red Sea that parted and all those good... Anyone anyone seen flannel graph before? Man, that's not enough hands. We're going to need to bring back some flannel graph. That might be... That's a great idea. Probably should have thought of that six weeks ago. That would have been great. Um, Israel was delivered out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land, and God continued to say, yeah, there's been times where you have broken this covenant, but this covenant is still there. You be faithful to me. I'll be faithful to you. Go into the promised land. Worship me. Be faithful to me. And the Israelites slowly allow compromise into their lives. They allow idol worship and wickedness and sin, which leads to, after several generations, now I'm covering through a lot of ground here in the recap, they get exiled Babylon is the mighty nation, the mighty, you know, empire of the world, the power of the world at that time. And they come in and they destroy the temple and they tear down the city walls around Jerusalem. They take a number of Israelites back into Babylon as slaves, as in exile. And that's what happens there. The prophets are seeing, they're speaking to the people saying, turn back to God, turn back to God. Eventually the Babylonian empire gets defeated and they're no longer the world power Persia is now the world power, and their ruler comes in and says, I'm going to be favorable to you, Israelites. You can now return and go back to your home and rebuild your temple, rebuild the city walls. So this is kind of where the Old Testament ends. The Israelites were in exile, and they'd been allowed to return, rebuild their temple, rebuild their city walls. They're still not a nation. They still don't have a king. They're still under the Persian Empire rule. But that is where the Old Testament kind of comes to an end. And then there's this period of 400 years between the last written history or prophecy from God in the Old Testament to where we pick up the New Testament. 400 years of really silence. There's really nothing happening. God was apparently silent during that time, and that's the end of the Old Testament. So today we're starting in the New Testament where we pick up the story after that 400 years of silence because 
In the Old Testament, throughout it, they would have prophecies about a Messiah that would come. They had this hope in their heart that one day God's going to send a Messiah who's going to bring deliverance and freedom to his people. So they would go through those years of exile, go through those years of silence, that 400-year period, feeling probably very spiritually dark and alone, but realizing we have the hope that there's going to be a Messiah. And that's where we pick it up today. The start of the New Testament, where Jesus gets introduced into the story. I'm pretty excited about that. Just a quick overview of the New Testament. Um, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, where the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. So there's different languages, different original languages. Sometimes you'll hear preachers, when we like to sound smart, we'll say in the original Greek, the word means this. But actually, it actually um, comes in handy sometimes, because there are times where the original word in Greek or Hebrew doesn't really get translated with the full meaning that we had in the original language. So, New Testament was written in Greek. I, uh, they, scholars say that Greek was the, the language they chose to write it because after all of these events happened, after all the events of Jesus and the disciples in the early church, that's when the New Testament was written. And at that time, Greek was the predominant language in the world. So they wanted these words that they were writing down about Jesus and all that happened to reach the widest audience possible. So that is why Greek, that would be, you know, like English is today, pretty much the language that is spoken in most parts of the world, or at least the one that would be the majority of people. Greek at the time was the language which would reach the widest audience. So the New Testament is kind of broken down. I know this is just real quick review, and if you would like... We have a Bible timeline that we made, huh? Look at that. It's like going back to school. The whole Bible history and all the books of the Bible, we've had these available, so there's some at the table back there as you leave. But this gives you basically a timeline of history and where all the books of the Bible fit into that, as well as some of the main storylines of the Bible, just as a way for you when you are reading your Bible this week. See what I did there? I didn't say if. It's like when I say to my kids, when you clean your room. No, it's, I mean, kind of the same thing. You'll have a framework of where all these... Bible, these books fit in the Bible. Because the reason we wanted to do this series was because a lot of times I think we can find a verse in the scripture and read it and have no framework for where this fits in the story. So that's why we're doing all of this. So the New Testament has the four Gospels. That's what we start out with, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Are we with me so far? Somebody nod or say yes. Okay. A lot of you must have spent some hours shoveling the snow or everyone's a little sleepy. It's warm in here. It might be nap time. But I'm looking at the clock. It's only 1047. So I've got like an hour and a half. I got an hour and a half to kill. So buckle up, everybody. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the gospels. These are the books that talk the life and the teaching of Jesus Christ. They are written by four different Authors And after the Gospels, we have the book of Acts, which is like the continuation of the story after Jesus died and rose again. The start of the early church, the Apostle Paul, the disciples going around, and basically the beginning of the spread of the message of Jesus Christ after he died and rose again. And after that, for the rest of the New Testament, are letters, or what we call epistles. They are written by different authors, most of them written by the Apostle Paul. This is after the church has started. They are writing letters to different cities where they've planted a church or to different individuals. And so books like Romans, Corinthians, Ephesians, Galatians, these are all letters written telling people about Jesus. A lot of theology that we get for what we call the New Testament church comes from these epistles saying this is how we are to be as a church. So you've got the Gospels, you've got the Book of Acts, and you've got the epistles written to different 
audiences, individuals, some of them Jewish audiences, some of them Gentile audiences. Gentiles are people who were not Jewish, people who were not sons and daughters of Abraham, who, didn't, who weren't the people of Israel coming through the Old Testament, who were considered outsiders. All of these things that were written to them, Jewish and Gentile audiences. And then we have the last book of the Bible is the book of Revelation, written by the Apostle John. And this was about the end of the world. So we're going to get to that in a couple of weeks. That's going to be pretty fun. So today we're starting with Matthew. We're going to talk about the Gospels today. We're going to talk about Jesus today. And chapter 1 of Matthew, again, if you've said to yourself, I'm going to read through the Bible, and you got through Genesis, and Exodus was okay, but then Leviticus was the law, and all the things, all the rules, and you said, I can't do that. I'm going to start with the New Testament. You start with Matthew, and right away, it's the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, and you're like, this is boring, this is terrible stuff, but that genealogy... If you look at Matthew chapter 1, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. But Matthew chapter 1, it's the first verses. This is the gene- genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, a descendant of, a- of David, the son of Abraham, a descendant of Abraham. And it goes through from Abraham, who was the father of Isaac, who was the father of Jacob, all, a lot of these people that we've been studying in the last five weeks. And it goes through everybody who's in the line of Jesus Christ leading up to Uh, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. So you have historical record of all the generations between Abraham and Jesus. Now, what's really interesting about this, and you might be thinking, really, I'm looking for anything kind of interesting about that. In that genealogy are some interesting names. We've got the familiar ones, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, In the Old Testament, we say that the the Messiah will come from the tribe of Judah. That means he was a descendant of Judah. The sons of Israel made the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus came from that. He was a a descendant of Judah. And it mentions uh, Tamar. Remember, we talked about this story of Tamar. Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah who did not have an heir, who did not have a son. And that was a big deal. So in in her solution, she dressed up like a prostitute, and tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her so she could have an heir. So we talked about that. That's like messed up. That's Thursday nights on ABC kind of drama, scandalous sort of stuff, okay? So Tamar, when they're writing this, you would think that that the writer of the New Testament, who is Matthew, you'd think that the writer of this book would say, yeah, we're not gonna put Tamar in there. We're not gonna put that name in there, but it goes on. Tamar is mentioned. Rahab is mentioned who is a Canaanite prostitute. She is in the lineage of Christ. Talking about Ruth, who is a Moabite, an outsider. When the Israelites were going into the promised land, Ruth was part of an outsider family. She is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. It talks about King David. It talks about a number of kings. But it also mentions King David's wife, Bathsheba. And we know the story of David and Bathsheba, right? This was another guy's wife. David messed up, had a child with another guy's wife, and that is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. So all of these names, this genealogy reveals to us that the line of Christ comes through some pretty interesting stories, doesn't it? It comes through some kings, and it comes through some very prominent people, which you would expect. But it also comes through the misfits, A lot of these people in here are mentioned, they're the youngest of the family. They're not the oldest. And in the Old Testament, everything went to the oldest son. If you were the firstborn, you got all the rights, you got all the privileges. But it's like Jesus is saying, no, I'm not just coming through the important people. I'm coming through the misfits. I'm coming through the outsiders. I'm coming through the youngest of the family, the outcasts, the rebellious. 
I'm going to come through and redeem the big mistakes. I love that Jesus says that. My redemption is coming through your worst moment. David and Bathsheba, you're not proud of that moment. But this is the lineage of Christ that's coming through that. Judah and Tamar, I'm sure you're not proud of that moment. But this is the lineage of Christ bringing redemption to our failures and our mistakes. I love the first chapter of Matthew because it just shouts out to us. God redeems our mess. Amen? God redeems our mess, the things that we are embarrassed about. He brings redemption right through the center of that part of our story. And you see that throughout the story that we've been talking about. Moses, a guy who was fearful to even lead anybody. Joshua, the, the, tri- the spies that went into the land and said we can't do it. All the times there was a lack of faith. All the times that the Israelites failed, it's like God continues to say, I'm going to bring my redemption through the worst parts of your story. So that's how the New Testament begins in Matthew chapter 1. And then we get to the chapters that we really only read around Christmas time. This is the Christmas story. But I wanted to read to you Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, the Christmas account. Now again, this is after 400 years of silence from God. This is after 400 years where people hadn't heard anything, hoping for the Messiah to come. And this is what we read in Matthew 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So Mary was pregnant scandalous. Um, They were still yet to be married, but uh, Joseph had decided, you know what, I'm not going to divorce her publicly. I'll do it privately. I don't want to embarrass her in verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, Joseph, descendant of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save the people from their sins." All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Now remember, we talked about the prophets in the Old Testament. This is an actual quote from the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The last part of that is from Isaiah 7.14, one of the Old Testament prophecies talking about the coming Messiah. So this is the account after 400 years of God being silent. All of a sudden, there's that day, the Messiah has come. The Messiah is born. Not a huge announcement. You would think that God would have said, you know, march the trumpets in and let the whole nation know this was a quiet story. Angels appeared to some shepherds. Some wise men saw the star in the sky. Not a ton of people knew about it right away. But this is what, this is the world that Jesus was born into. This is the situation when he was born. And I want to talk a little bit about that world, that culture That Jesus was born into because we think, you know, the nativity scene and we've got the angels and the shepherds and the wise men and the and the manger and all that stuff. But there was a whole other world culture that Jesus was born into. And we talked about this a little bit. When the Israelites in the Old Testament were exiled, it was the Babylonian Empire. When they were allowed to return to rebuild their temple, it was the Persian Empire. And then during those 400 years of silence, another empire came into world domination and world power. It was the Roman Empire. So there was no more Babylon, there was no more Persian Empire. Now it was the Roman Empire, and they were all about harsh control. They would conquer a country, 
They would take them over, and instantly all the citizens of that country would become second class. They would put their soldiers in there to keep guard over them. They would put representatives in there. So when you read about Herod in the New Testament, Herod is the representative from Rome who's in charge. A Herod would be put in charge of a certain region. Their job would be just to say, you know what? Keep everybody under control. You've got your soldiers, keep everybody under control. Almost like, you know, Hunger Games, sort of speaking. You know, you think Hunger Games. All the different, what's the, the uh, number 12, tri- not 12, never mind. I'm going, down the, I'm going down a Hunger Games rabbit hole, which we just don't have the time for. Because somebody changed the clock now, and now I see that it's 11.57. Where did that hour go? I must be preaching so good, I didn't know where the hour went. Um, Herod would come in, and they would rule over a region of a country, and they would rule over the citizens of that country. And they had centurion soldiers. So when you read the story of Jesus healing the centurion's servant, this is Jesus healing the servant of one of the Roman soldiers who's there to oppress the Israelite people. This was about harsh control. They dominated, and they heavily taxed the Israelites because they needed money to fund the empire. So there was tax collectors who were there, And the tax collectors would be Jewish people, Israelites, who worked for Rome, who their job was to take money from their fellow countrymen, and if they took more than what was required, they got to pocket it themselves. So there was great um, incentive for being dishonest here. They would take money from their fellow countrymen and give it to Rome. So you can imagine how popular the tax collectors were, right? Because Rome was hated by the Israelites, Because they were essentially ruling over them. They were essentially slaves under Roman rule. They had no rights. This was the world. This was the culture that Jesus was born into. This was a hostile environment. In addition to all the political um, tension that was happening in the region, they were still allowed to worship in their temple. The temple that was rebuilt after the exile, after they returned, the temple was still there. They would go and they would offer offerings and worship their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There were religious rulers, religious leaders there called the Pharisees, and they were all about following the rules of the Old Testament, seeing themselves as superior. They also would try to control the people. They also would, all they would do is tell the people, you're not doing this right. You're failing. You're not being enough for God to love you. And so they would take advantage of the people as well. So all of this was happening in the religious arena as well. Now, Rome would allow them to worship their God. Rome would allow them to keep their temple. And the understanding was, as long as you don't cause any problems for Rome, you can do whatever you want. You can worship whoever you want. It's kind of like as parents, if you're downstairs at the end of the day, and you're sitting down and you're enjoying reading a book, or it's finally some peace and quiet, and you don't hear anything from the kids, all, maybe it's just me, but all I'm thinking is, I don't care what they're doing. As long as they're not bothering me, They could be crafting a golden calf and worshiping gods up there. As long as they're not bothering me, that's totally fine, right? That's kind of what Rome was thinking about with the Israelites. You can worship whoever you want. Just don't don't cause any problems for us. And what would happen is every once in a while, because of these prophecies in the Old Testament, everyone knew a Messiah was coming. Everyone knew a Messiah was coming to bring deliverance. Now, when we look back on this, knowing the whole New Testament, we hear what the angel said to Joseph saying, there's going to be a Messiah and he's going to save the people from their sins. We understand what that means. Jesus was going to die and bring forgiveness to our sins so that we could have eternal life. The Israelites, 
They thought something completely different because when they think Messiah, they think there's going to be another king who's going to come. He's going to raise us up and we are going to get rid of Rome. It's going to be like the Old Testament when Joshua went in and the Canaanites were all wiped out. Our Messiah is going to come as a military leader and ruler, and he's going to raise up an army, and we are going to defeat Rome with the power of God on our side. This is what they're looking for. So in the midst of all of this turmoil, religious with the Pharisees and Rome and being like second-class citizens under Rome, every once in a while, a Messiah, quote-unquote, would show up. During this time, there were people who would rise up and say, I'm the Messiah, follow me, we're going to overthrow Rome. And eventually, if they got enough of a following, eventually if they made enough trouble for the centurion soldiers or for Herod, eventually if Rome found out about this rebellion, they would see, well, that's a threat against Rome. And they would march in and wipe out this Messiah and this rebellion. And in that time, Rome had a very particular punishment that they would give for crimes against Rome, and that was crucifixion. Crucifixion was the punishment used by Rome because it was cruel. It was torturous. It was a deterrent. And they would nail people to crosses. And this was the most cruel way to be killed. But this was Rome's way of saying, if you rise up against us, this is what's going to happen to you. We're going to mar- as soon as we find out about a rebellion, all this talk of a Messiah, as soon as we see something that's going to cause a rebellion, we're going to march in, we're going to wipe it out, and anybody responsible is going to be nailed to one of these crosses. And they would leave the bodies on the crosses for a long period of time, up on the hillside, so that everybody walking down the streets could look up there and see bodies on a cross and be reminded, this is what happens when you come against Rome and you try to do anything to cause problems with Rome. This was all that was happening in this context when Jesus was born. Now, when you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, Matthew, I'm going to just give a little recap about the author of each of these. Matthew was a disciple of Jesus. So he was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. He was a tax collector. Okay, so you imagine that first day when Matthew shows up to follow Jesus, like, hey, guys, good to see you. They're all going to look at him like, yeah, you're a tax collector. You're a traitor. You were taking money from us and giving it to Rome. He's one of the disciples. Jesus invited him to be a disciple, and he would later, after Jesus had died and rose and ascended to heaven, Matthew would write these words that we have in the Gospel of Matthew, an eyewitness account. The Gospel of Mark, Mark was not a disciple of Jesus, Um, most scholars believe that Mark was a close associate of Peter, who was a disciple. So again, Mark was probably a guy that later on, after Jesus died and rose again, he would listen to Peter tell the story of Jesus. He would listen to all the accounts of Peter, who was an eyewitness, and he wrote those down in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Luke. Luke is not a disciple. Luke wasn't even Jewish. He was a Gentile, an outsider, He heard about Jesus later on. So after Jesus died and rose again and the message of Jesus was spreading throughout the world, eventually Luke heard about it. Luke became a believer. And he said, i got to go and talk to all these eyewitnesses to find out what's going on. I'm hearing so much about this Jesus. And so he went and wrote down a careful account from interviewing all the eyewitnesses he could find. He became a close companion of Paul, the Apostle Paul. And Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And finally, the Gospel of John... John was a Jewish believer, also a disciple. John followed Jesus and gave this eyewitness account in the Gospel of John to all the things that he heard Jesus say and do. 
He also wrote the epistles or letters later on in the New Testament, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he also wrote the book of Revelation where God gave him this revelation of the things that are to come, the end of the world. So I point that out to say Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four Gospels, they're different points of view. They're different writers. They're different times of writing. But the important thing to recognize is all of them were written within a few years after Jesus died and rose again while all the eyewitnesses were still alive. So Jesus would have, you know, people would have seen Jesus teach. They would have witnessed him die. They would have witnessed him rise again. And all of a sudden, all these gospel writers are writing this account when all the eyewitnesses are still alive. So if the, if the gospels contained anything that wasn't true, there was tons of eyewitnesses there who could say, yeah, no, that, that part there, that's not right. That never happened. Yeah, that whole part about the resurrection, that never happened. No, we don't see that because the eyewitnesses were all there saying, yep, I was there. I saw it. I saw it with my own two eyes. It's a very important thing to recognize. There's some validity. There's validity to the scripture because these are all eyewitness accounts. So we're going to go through the story of Jesus a little bit. After he was born, we don't read much about him, about his life, until his ministry began when he was about 30 years old. So there's really not much at all about Jesus as a youngster. There's one story when he was a young boy, but we don't hear anything about his ministry till he's about 30 years old when he begins to teach, when he begins to call disciples. Rabbis would do that. They would find young men and say, I want you to be one of my followers. Come and follow me. This was a very common thing for a rabbi or a teacher to do. Jesus began to do that. He began to teach, call people to be his disciples. Jesus began to perform miracles and heal the sick and raise the dead. And because of all of these things, he begins to get a following. If you've got a guy who's going around healing the sick, making the lame walk, the blind are seeing, obviously, People are going to take notice, and people take notice of Jesus, and word begins to spread, and people begin to start murmuring to each other, is he the one? This could be the one. Obviously, God's on his side because he's performing miracles. This, is, this could be the one. This could be the Messiah. And what are they thinking? They're thinking, this could be the Messiah that comes and raises up an army, and we're going to overthrow Rome. This could be it. We're finally going to defeat Rome. And Jesus begins to teach, and again, the, the, the momentum builds and builds. And we finally have the first account of what Jesus teaches in the book of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. And you can imagine, I love to imagine all the crowds gathering around waiting for Jesus to teach. And they're expecting something like, aren't you tired of Rome? They're expecting like charged up political rally, like we're going to overthrow who's in charge, and we're going to take back our nation, and people are going to cheer, and it's going to be this big like rally the troops moment. And the first words out of Jesus' mouth in the Sermon on the Mount, he begins to speak and says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And everybody listening would have been like, what? No, no, no. No, that's not right. That's like, you know, when we get into political season around here, which is super fun for everybody, when is it not political season? That would be like the big candidate ready to win an election saying, eh, you know, I think we're okay with that other guy, right? Let's just be nice people. They'd be like, no, what? No, we're not here for that. We're here to overthrow the other people. So Jesus starts teaching, love your enemies. And they're like, love your, no, we're not going to love our enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. No, you're, this is terrible. You're a terrible Messiah. <laughs> Boo, we want, we want that other guy. Jesus is teaching that it's not about earthly standing and national freedom. It's about laying down your life for others. 
preferring others, this had to be very confusing to the people. Because they're like, no, that's not what we're looking for in a Messiah. But yet you're healing everybody. Yet there's 5,000 of us more than that, probably more like eight or 9,000 of us that don't have food, and you provide food miraculously. You're performing all these miracles, and yet you're saying things that just aren't lining up with what we think the Messiah is supposed to do. Jesus is teaching again, and I'll read a couple of different examples from different Gospels. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus is teaching that he'll, he'll just, he says this. Jesus answered in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Matthew 16, verse 24. Again, Jesus teaching his disciples. And then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. All of this was foreign teaching. All of this was foreign teaching to the Israelites. They would have said, no, 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 no. We don't die to ourselves. We're God's chosen people. We know the Old Testament. We're the nation of people that God says, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to wipe out every nation that gets in your way. We don't need to lay down our lives and take up our cross. We are the sons and daughters of Abraham, God's preferred. We don't serve, we conquer. This is what they're thinking. But Jesus began to teach. Another thing that Jesus did, which is important to point out, he gave value to all people. In this culture, if you were sick or poor, it was because God was against you and you had no value. And Jesus said, no, you have value. Jesus was revolutionary in his approach to the treatment of women and the value that women had in this culture. Jesus did so much for treating women as equals that was foreign in the culture leading up to that. He valued women, the sick, the poor. He ate with sinners and tax collectors. And all of this offended those religious rulers And then there was a time when Jesus actually talked to the religious rulers and said, you guys are the ones that are actually far from God. In Mark chapter 6, or sorry, Mark 7, verse 6 through 8, Jesus replied, he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. He's talking to the Pharisees here. As it is written, and he quotes Isaiah, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human tradition. Jesus is teaching. There's value in the sick and the poor. We are to lay down and serve one another. And then he's also teaching it's not about all the rules, all the Old Testament rules that you Pharisees are following. It's not about that. It's about faith in God. It's about love for people. It's about mercy and grace that you cannot earn, but it's available to you. Again, foreign teaching to everybody. And he's saying it's not just for the Jews. It's not just for God's people, the nation of Israel. It's for everybody. And again, they're thinking, no, we know the Old Testament. It's not for everybody. It's just for us. And Jesus says, no, this is a new teaching. It is love for everyone, salvation for everyone, mercy that is not earned by following the rules, but it is earned through the grace of God. And because of that, the Pharisees see Jesus as a threat. Because the Pharisees, the religious rulers, they had control over the people. All of a sudden, the people now are hearing a new teaching. They have a new Messiah that they believe is the case, who is performing miracles, providing food for them, giving them value, telling them that they are just as valuable in God's eyes as everybody else. And so the Pharisees see Jesus as a threat. The people see Jesus as a hero. Rome, so far, isn't really taking notice because, again, they're like, I don't care what you do, just don't bother us. You guys can sort this out yourself. 
So I'm covering over a lot of ground, but I want to get to the Last Supper. Again, this is all happening while the Pharisees are saying, we got to get rid of this Jesus. But we can't just arrest him because then the people are going to riot and the people are going to stage a revolt. And then what happens is Rome steps in and wipes us all out. So we have to just keep this quiet, but we got to get rid of this Jesus, which leads us to the Last Supper. The Last Supper, which was the weekend they were celebrating the Passover meal, the Passover which we talked about way back in Exodus. This is the Last Supper. This is the night before Jesus is arrested and crucified, or the night he was arrested and crucified. And I want to read some verses from the Last Supper found in Luke chapter 22. These are verses we read often when we take communion. Luke chapter 22, verse 19. But there's a moment in here that I really want to highlight. So I'm going to read these verses. Luke 22, verse 19. Jesus is with his disciples, and he took bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, we look back and realize he's saying, my body's about to be nailed to a cross to give you forgiveness. This was lost on the disciples at the moment. Verse 20, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup, now get this word here, this cup is the what? Is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. That word, the new covenant, Again, I don't think the, the disciples recognized what it was, but in their mind, the covenant between man and God was the Abraham one, where God showed up to Abraham and said, you be faithful to me, I'll be faithful to you. You hold up your end of the deal, I'll hold up my end of the deal. Jesus comes along and says, that whole thing, in that word there, in that sentence there, this cup is the new covenant, Jesus ushers in a whole new thing revolutionary that says it's not about following the rules and doing all the Old Testament things to keep this covenant with God. It's about this truth. And if you look back at the Old Testament, you would recognize there were so many times when Israel broke the covenant, right? There were so many times that they weren't faithful. And it's like with this new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ, God says, yeah, there's a new covenant now. It's not about if you can measure up with all the rules. It's not about how many times you fall short. It's about that I'm going to be faithful to you with mercy and grace no matter what. This is a new thing. Through the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you are made righteous. You are made righteous. It doesn't matter if you follow the rules. It doesn't matter if you fall short. If you have your faith in Jesus Christ, you're part of the covenant. Even when you mess up, God still says, you haven't been faithful to me, I'm still going to be faithful to you because Jesus' blood brought redemption. This is what Jesus is saying at the Last Supper. The crushing weight of Old Testament rules and following the law was gone. And you'd read later in the New Testament, the New Testament writers would say, and that's fine because nobody could follow it anyways. Nobody was doing it anyways. But we got rid of the old rules, the old sacrificial system. Now there is one sacrifice by Jesus Christ for everyone. Jesus came to bring us freedom from sin. He didn't, what they didn't recognize was Jesus was not there to bring freedom from Rome. Jesus was there to bring freedom from sin. Later that night, after the Last Supper, late at night when no one's around, Jesus is arrested. In the dark, in the secret, as to not start a riot amongst the people. They didn't want Rome stepping in and crushing a rebellion. They came up with charges. They tried to 
you know, get Jesus on crimes against God. The Pharisees were saying, he says he's the son of God. We, you know, that's, that's punishable by death. Eventually they say, he's going to overthrow Rome. That's, you know, they make up charges about, about crimes against Rome. Anything they can find, the Pharisees come up with. They just want Jesus gone. And Jesus was crucified later that day. The Roman soldiers came and got him, and they punished him like they had all these other quote-unquote messiahs. Crime against Rome, he was nailed to a cross, he was crucified, and he was laid in a tomb. And everybody who followed Jesus, everybody who followed Jesus and loved Jesus had the same thought in that moment. It's over. It's over. Turns out he was another one of those false messiahs who came up. We don't understand how he did all those miracles, but clearly a Messiah sent from God would not allow himself to be killed. It's over. And so for many, everybody at that moment, this story of Jesus Christ was over. He was just a man who lived, a teacher, someone who claimed to be God, and then he was killed. But we know that's not the end, right? Amen? We know that's not the end. And we know, as we've seen throughout this story, God brings his redemption right through the darkest part of our story. Right through the worst moment, we know God's bringing his redemption right through that darkest hour. And that's where we're going to pick up the story next week. (laughs) You know, spoiler alert, in case you're not going to be here next week, he doesn't stay dead. Okay, so in case you missed you, in case it snows again and we have to, (laughs) that was, yes, so that's next week. But I wanted to just wrap this up today. How do we sum up the Gospels? How do we sum up the Gospels? I mean, I've taken like 35 minutes to talk through four of the most well-known works of literature in all the world, so obviously there's no way we can even scratch the surface of the Gospels. But how do we sum up the Gospels? I wanted to read some verses from John, John chapter 3. Now, one of them, the first verse I'm going to read is one of a handful of the most well-known Bible verses in the world. But I wanted to read John 3, verse 16 through 21. It says this, John 3, 16, and we probably know this one. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then it keeps going. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. I love this. This is kind of how we sum up the Gospels. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. This is the gospel message. This is what we are as the New Testament church. Salvation through faith for everybody through Jesus Christ because of what he has done. It's not about following the rules. If you think you're not good enough for God to love you, that's not the way it works anymore. It is through faith in Jesus Christ. He brings his redemption through our worst mess and he brings salvation for all. It's not for the religious insiders It's not for the well-behaved, it's for all, through faith in Jesus Christ. And when we receive that mercy, what we're doing is we're bringing our lives into the light. We're bringing our lives into the light. A lot of people want to be standoffish with faith because they're like, I don't want anybody messing with all the stuff I got going on in here. I got got 
bad things going on. I don't want anybody messing with that. When we have salvation through Jesus Christ and we begin to follow him, we bring our lives into the light. We bring every part of us to the cross and we lay it before Jesus and we allow the light of Jesus to come in and illuminate us, every part. And it's a process. It's a process. There are, time, there are habits and addictions and patterns of sin that we have, but we never say, nope, God, I'm going to receive your forgiveness for all these little things, but this part of me, this baggage that I'm holding on to, I'm just going to keep holding on to that and just carry that with me forever. No, we lay that before the cross, and we say, God, I want your light to come in to illuminate every part of my life. It's about just surrendering to him. This is what following Jesus is. We lay down our lives, we take up our cross, and we follow him, and we allow him to do his redemption, redemptive work in us, in every part. We allow the light to come in and bring healing. I imagine like a, if you have a cut or something, you have it covered up, and it's not really, sometimes they say the best thing for it, just take that bandage off and allow the, the light to come in, allow the air to hit it, allow it to heal. This is what we do with us. We don't cover things up and hide it. We just allow the light to come in and bring healing. Whatever burden you're carrying, whatever failure, whatever thing that you're ashamed of, bring it to God. And it's not like God is going to say, oh, I didn't even know that. No, we can't do anything with that. No, the blood of Jesus covers everything. The blood of Jesus is freely given. And when we bring our lives into the light of Christ, it brings healing. It brings redemption. This is the work of Christ in us. But here is the deal today. It is our choice. John chapter 3 said it. Some of us choose to live in the light and to receive this. And others choose to reject it. It's our choice. It's a dying to self. It's a daily following Jesus, carrying our cross. It's loving others, all others. It's serving people. It's laying our lives down. This is what Jesus calls us to do as his church. So I've been wrapping up each sermon with this little recap. Long story short. Do we have that one up on the screen? Long story short. Israel rebuilds their city and temple following exile, and that is followed by a long period of silence from God. But one day in Bethlehem, Jesus is born, who is the promised Messiah. His message was love, mercy, forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. But he is seen as a threat and is executed on a cross. His death means life for us, a new covenant for all people, not based on the law, but on faith. This is salvation. Let's close in prayer today. Jesus, we take this time today and we look into the Gospels and we just, we marvel at the work that you did. We thank you that you came to earth. After a period of darkness and silence, you came and you were the light of the world. And Jesus, we recognize again today that it was your work on the cross that took away the old covenant of trying to follow the rules to measure up to God's holiness. And instead, the new covenant was simply this. You shed your blood for us so that we could be seen as righteous. No matter what we've done and no matter what we will do, that blood covers us. We are seen as righteous. What, what an amazing accomplishment. What an amazing sacrifice, Jesus. We, just, we humble ourselves again and just recognize you have given everything for us so that we could be free and forgiven. And so, Jesus, I pray that that work would be alive in us today. And I'm praying for people who are in this room, who are hearing this message sometime later, that they've never made that commitment. They've never allowed you to bring salvation. They've never come into the new covenant. They've never chosen you as a savior. I pray that they would do that right now. And if you want to do that and you're listening to my voice, just simply say, Jesus, I receive your forgiveness. I know I'm a sinner. 
but I receive your forgiveness and now I walk every day living for you. I allow the light of Christ to invade every part of my life. So God, do that work in us. And I pray that you would do that work in our community. You would use us to spread the light of Jesus to everywhere we go. Thank you for this, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.